don't send leaders to Washington. I mean, people should just get over that, please. And we don't need fighters in Washington. People are always saying, I'll go fight for you. I will lead you. No, we don't want you to do that. We want you to take our concerns there. Welcome to Artist as Leader, where we explore the intersection of creativity and leadership. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Corey Madden. In this unique episode, we interview one of the great American actors of his generation, as well as his niece, a remarkable actor, playwright, and activist. He is the incomparable Wes Studi. For over 30 years, he's been an indelible presence on American screens, big and small, starring in such blockbusters as Dances with Wolves, The Last of the Mohicans, and Geronimo, an American legend. A lifelong activist, he currently serves as the spokesperson for the Indigenous Language Institute, which works to ensure that cultural practices and identities are passed down to future Native generations in their respective communities' original language. And in October of this year, Wes will receive an honorary Oscar at the 11th Annual Governor's Awards, becoming the first Native American actor ever to receive an Academy Award. She is Delana Studi, an actor I know very well because I'm directing her in And So We Walked, a solo play she wrote in which she retraces the 900-mile Trail of Tears in the company of her father. We premiered the play at Triad Stage in North Carolina and took it to Portland Center Stage in Oregon, and we're looking forward to its next production at Indiana Repertory in October. Delena has performed on stages all over the country, most recently in the off-Broadway premiere of Gloria, A Life, a new play by Emily Mann about Gloria Steinem. As an activist, Delena is the chair of the Native Americans Committee of SAG-AFTRA and also mentors young Native artists through a variety of community-based initiatives. Today, we're listening to excerpts of a much longer interview that I did with Wes and Delena in May of 2018 when we were all together in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We'll start with an excerpt from early in the interview about how each of these two amazing people became performers. I actually, you know, not really stumbled onto, I actually directly went into this this, uh, idea of becoming an artist, which was not... uh, on my mind primarily, you know, becoming an artist. Uh, I just wanted to uh, see what it was like if I could learn to be an actor. And as time went on, uh, no one ever said, hey, you're good at this, you should do this. Uh, But on the other hand, I kept getting picked for this and auditioning and getting picked for stuff. And so I figured, well, if that's the case, I might be able to do it on a grander scale. Uh, that's you know I started out in Tulsa, Oklahoma, doing stage uh, stuff, uh, community theater, that kind of thing, and uh, so after a while, uh, it, I found it was pretty easy for me to get a job. But uh, so I just had to take it on my own recognizance that uh, yeah, well, I guess I might be pretty good at this, you know. <laughs> so your talent picked you. <laughs> okay. <All right. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you did you have at, at some point any mentor in your career, or did you really carve out your career? Are you are you in a way that the the first in a generation of people to do what you've done? Um, I I think I'm the first one to become involved in performance like this. Yeah, uh, beyond music. I mean that we have like my my dad was like like to play and was in a band and all of that but uh, as far as uh, 
performance as an actor. Uh, I think uh, I'm the first one in the family. Yeah, uh, both sides of the family. Yeah. Does. yeah. Delaney, I'm just going to ask you a little bit about, because I know that Wes played a role in you being mentored in your the beginning of your career. Could you just talk a little bit about that? How did that influence you? Oh, my goodness. Well, basically, you know, I wanted to be an actor at a very young age, and Wes had proven that it could be done. And so I think that's the reason why my dad let me go to Los Angeles and try to be an actor, is he knew that people could make a living out of it. And, um, and you know, Wes went to Los Angeles, and he didn't lose his head, so my father assumed that I would go to Los Angeles and not lose my head. And then, of course, when I got to Los Angeles, you know, Wes... Um, connected me with Sherry Foster, who has become my Cherokee auntie, and she helped help me along the way as well. And so it's, you know, one of the things my dad always taught me was whenever you go to a new place, if you find the Native community, you're going to find home. And so I was able to connect with some of Wes's really good friends who now become, like, family members for me and also mentors for me and help shape me into the career that I have now. But I would not have been allowed that opportunity if Wes hadn't been successful because that was just too much of a risk for a little Oklahoma girl to go to Los Angeles by herself. Later in our conversation, Delena and I talked about how I encouraged her to be vulnerable in her writing and acting. And Wes mentioned that being vulnerable and taking risks were crucial to his creative development. The first time I ever put myself out there, I think, was a uh, as a, uh, a writer. Uh, I, I worked for the... Uh, uh, Cherokee Nation's um, communications department uh, a number of years ago, and uh, uh, and uh, to write stories to that are real, and then to write fiction and stuff. That was kind of my job. Um, so uh, that that's one of the uh, one of the vulnerabilities that you uh, that I had to overcome at that point was. Uh, okay, I'll write down what I think and what I think is uh, nice and good and uh, perhaps entertaining and whatever, uh, you know, and I'll put it out there and have other people read it. You know, I mean, there's writers who like, no, no, you can't see it until it's totally finished or, you know, well, that was, I think that was my first time ever doing that, though I had done it in terms of book reports and things like that. I understood that at that time, but on the other hand, when you're being paid to do it, and it's actually being seen by people that that are outside your classroom or something like that, I mean, to the public, mm-hmm. you know, you put throw yourself out there. These are just your ideas. It's not really you, your ideas and or thoughts. And they could easily jump in, up and down on them, trash them, love them, whatever. So, but uh, you're taking that chance. I mean, we use the term vulnerability. What What it really is for me is overcoming the fear see that's at the seat of vulnerability right it's uh, the basic core of vulnerability is fear of loss fear fear of uh, uh, failure fear of uh, of uh, trying to lead the charge looking back and seeing there's nobody following you you know it's like uh, (laughs) <laughs> You've been there, done that. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, let's go get them, guys, and huh? Right. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, that I use. Well, I've many times used uh, a um, 
What I went through in my mind before walking out on stage, say for the first time, uh, opening night or something like that, uh, of any plays and whatever I've done over the years, it's like uh, I have <clears throat> in the wings and in front of me what is, is like a substance, it's an actual substance uh, that, I, that you can move through, but it's not easy to do. It is like walking through jello or pudding or something like that. I mean, you're slowed way down or you get a, a stiff wind or something like that until you finally hit that mark and boom, say your first line, and then it's either glorious or disastrous. You, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. But on the other hand, you do make it from the wings through that. Mm, the hardest part of it is, and that's a simple overcoming of the fear you have of uh, audience, of, of, uh, of failing. Delena, who chairs the Native Americans Committee for SAG-AFTRA, the Film, Television, and Radio Performers Union, shared a story about her nephew and how she inadvertently learned the fine art of compromise. So my oldest nephew, Blaine, graduated from high school, and he was gifted with an eagle feather, which is one of the highest honors any Native person can be given. And my nephew got it because he maintained good grades throughout high school. He also had a second job. And he did the Remember the Removal Bike Ride, which uh, he was driving out to Tahlequah every weekend um, and just going through crazy training for 6 to 12 hours a day all week long and then driving back to Muldrow, which is where my, my family lives, and then attending school. And then he did the Remember the Removal Bike Ride, which is a leadership program for Cherokee youth where they ride um, bicycles all the way from Cherokee, North Carolina to Tahlequah, Oklahoma, along the northern route of the Trail of Tears. And that's a big honor. Blaine, at the time, was one of the youngest people to be accepted into that program. He had to write an application. He had to be interviewed by the tribal council. You know, it was it was a very long process when he was he was accepted. It was a big deal for our family. And he was one of the first people in my I want to I don't want to say he was the first person in a Mulder High School, but since it's been uh, reestablished the bike ride, um, he was one of the first people out of our county to do it. And so it was a big honor. And so he's worked really hard to get his eagle feather. And so. Um, he asked his high school if he could wear it during graduation, and they said no because they don't allow decoration on uh, the caps or gowns. And so Blaine actually called the chief, um, you know, and the chief was able to work out a concession with the superintendent that they're going to change the policy for the future, but didn't help Blaine in the situation at the present moment. And so my family and I went to visit the superintendent, and we had this really long conversation where we played our case, and we were trying to persuade him to let Blaine wear the eagle feather. And so the concession that was made was um, Blaine would not wear it at the beginning of the ceremony, but after he got his diploma, my father could present it to him and place it on his cap. So he would be able to wear it off. And we would have conversations with between the school systems, not just Mulder High School, but all the schools in District 3 and all the schools that are technically part of the Cherokee Nation and 14 counties that are considered Cherokee Nation. So I have conversations between those districts and the Cherokee Nation to reestablish a new policy with better language that would enable future um, enrolled Native citizens to wear an eagle feather at graduation. And so, um, and that was something, you know, if we can, if we can make the, the future better for those that come after us, then yes. But at the same time, it was very important that my father get to see his first grandchild graduate with an eagle feather. You know, it's my nephew only has this one chance to graduate from high school. My father only has a, this one opportunity to see his grandson walk down the aisle wearing an eagle feather. So we were able to make that concession. 
And it was, you know, it was one of those moments where, okay, are we, how much are we willing to give up? How much does this mean to us? And so that was something before, like if I was my teenage self, I would have said, that's not acceptable. This is what we're going to do. You're going to have to expel all of us from the family. We're all going to get kicked out. It's going to be on national news. And at the same time, if you do that, you kind of shut down communication between you and the school system. And, and it's going to be hostile territory. No one's going to want to work together in the future. But now I think the way we, we were able to settle things, uh, we both got what we wanted. And now we're open to future communication to make it better for future generations. And so learning that fine art of compromise and picking the battle and learning what to give up and what to fight for was, it was something that it's taken me a long time to learn, but we were able to put it into practice. I mean, who knows if we made the right decision? You know, right now I feel like we did. Um, it'll, it'll, it all, it'll depend on how the future conversations go about changing the policy that will determine if we made the right decision or not. Yeah, for the moment, I think you did. Uh, yeah, I, I don't see that uh, it could get. Uh, I don't see how it could get uh, bad or or go back to the way it was, because it, this was a first step in the right direction, and uh, and it worked out for you, your family, mm-hmm. and it worked out for the school. Uh, I mean. They may be standing back in the background eating it, but on the other hand... (laughs) I ended the interview by asking Wes if leadership skills can be passed on from generation to generation. I don't think a person ever passes it on. I think uh, it's the... The person who receives it, what the the wisdom that I think that's really the transfer. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a person goes about his own life, expressing his opinions, his plans, his uh, ideas, and uh, and 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 what makes it work, I think, is when a person listening to that <laughs> uh, receives it and uses it in a positive way uh, to help themselves and or whoever else. It's, it's uh, I think it's on the receiving end. You can't really have it. Yeah. it. You can't have that. It's a, you, you, you have this. You sit. can, yeah, hopefully you have the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the courage to try something uh, that's suggested by someone older because... Uh, yeah, when you're talking generations, you can only suggest to youngsters that what uh, might work and what might not work in their lives, uh, and uh, they either accept or don't. And uh, essentially, that's it. Uh, I think that's the only type of real leadership that exists, uh, because the other type of leadership is is uh, uh, is domination. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a matter of. Uh, uh, writing laws that everyone must obey and enforcing those laws, uh, writing legislation, yada, yada. It, I mean, that's the kind of, uh, of leadership, if you will, that uh, uh, that has come to be known as uh, probably the primary form of leadership when, exactly. when in actuality it's not, not in a democratic form of government that we supposedly have. It, it's representative. It's not. Lead, we don't send 
leaders to Washington. I mean, people should just get over that, please. And we don't need fighters in Washington. People are always saying, I'll go fight for you. I will lead you. No, we don't want you to do that. We want you to take our concerns there. I mean, that's a democratic process, right? Um, yeah, so I think that other, that other form of leadership, if you will, um, is kind of toxic. In its, in its own way. Uh, perhaps a nation of laws actually works well, uh, but on the other hand, uh, this, this other idea of uh, leadership in terms of uh, the kind of government we have, it, it's, it's, to me, toxic. You know? I think one, one of the reasons that this project is important to me is because I think that artists do have influence in a, in a way that I think is gentle and persuasive and demonstrates humility and frequently is on the ground and very person to person to person to person. I mean, yeah. obviously, when your image is up on screen, that's slightly different, but that's also influence. And if it's a vulnerable performance of a real human being, that is actually, to me, a form of leadership. Because it sways rather than commands. We were so fortunate to get this interview with Wes, and I found it really compelling to hear him talk about how he resists the term leader, but here he is about to become the first Native American actor to win the Academy Award. Yeah, you know, it it speaks so profoundly to the way we've been hearing artists talk about themselves. Uh, They don't see themselves as leaders most of the time. But, you know, that commitment to vulnerability, to authenticity, to honesty, these values and how they um, demonstrate them through the stories that they tell or the works that they make is really influential. And that's really what we're talking about. That kind of influence is a way that artists lead. Right. Their mindsets, uh, their self-awareness, their values, as you mentioned, those are all cornerstones of what leadership is about. And, you know, the skills that these leaders uh, have came through in the stories they told, which Delena tells me is the very Cherokee way of sharing knowledge. Yeah, kind of changing uh, or looking at narrative in a different way of thinking about what's actually possible. You know, really hearing her and Wes talk about directly and indirectly, you know, shaking off limiting beliefs of what they can achieve, um, the way they frame their narrative and don't force things to be patient um, letting people have their aha moments at their own pace and time. I thought those were all really beautiful ways of considering how to influence and interact with others around us. Yeah, it's been fascinating working on the play for the last four years. Um, after the performances, we have a lot of audiences come up to us and they've had their aha moment. And I think that that's, for me, one of the moments where I really see this is how artists lead. Mm. That's it for this episode of Artist as Leader. If you'd like to read a longer version of this interview, please be sure to visit our website, uncsa.edu slash Keenan. Remember to check back to discover what fascinating artist leader we've got on the schedule. We'd love to hear from you. So please find us on Facebook at the Keenan Institute for the Arts and leave us your thoughts. You can also let us know what artists you'd love to hear on the show. This podcast is produced by Pierre Carlo Talenti. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Corey Madden. Thanks for listening. <laughs>